I don't see anything. Oh, there you go. Okay. So you were you were asking a question that basically was why don't we just stop the mind rather than corral it into wholesome thoughts? And the first part of the answer is, is that you don't have the skills to do that and you'll just wind up being frustrated and the frustration then is unwholesome and it's also part of the thinking. That in fact, uh, to go into a state of no thought means that you have to have quite a lot of control over the mind anyway. And the easiest way to start that is by start making the decision that you're going to only allow wholesome thoughts in the mind. That's corralling it. Okay, you can think about it as you're only going to let facts or truth and you're going to make sure that the kind of thoughts that you have are not fanciful thoughts. Because fanciful thoughts, delusional thoughts, uh, based in unreality, are one of these days going to bite you like a snake. And so, uh, making sure then that we begin to corral the mind into a smaller space. One example that you could use is when uh, within Buddhism for many centuries, they have used the term monkey mind in the sense that the mind will jump from one thing to the next to the next. A little kinder thing to call it would be free association in the sense that this thought will have an associative thought, which will have an associative thought. And so the mind just jumps around like that and that we kind of let the mind do this. And we never actually uh, teach our children to actually train the mind. And training the mind then starts with uh, deciding what's worthwhile having in the mind. Rather than just letting anything come to mind. Thoughts of cruelty, for instance. Thoughts of revenge. Thoughts of... uh, getting back at thoughts of causing arguments, thoughts of uh, finishing arguments. Those are kind of thoughts that can fairly easily be seen as unwholesome once we start looking at them. Thoughts of, of cruelty, thoughts of wanting things that we don't have is a whole lot more subtle because many people will practice meditation a long time wanting results. And they don't have them. And some of the results they want has to do with magical thinking, like wanting magical powers. And because they want things that they don't have, that means that they feel incomplete without those magical powers, which they will never have. So that's kind of meaning that they're dooming themselves to be dissatisfied and not complete, not whole, not samadhi. However, if we don't want anything, 
if we don't want any magical powers, if we recognize that anybody who does have magical powers winds up generally misusing them, gets into trouble, or he's a charlatan from the begin with and you're just pretending to have magical powers and then gets into trouble. <laughs> so in both cases, magical power is trouble. Once we see the dukkha in it, then we can say, wow, I bet I can get along without that kind of stuff. <laughs> more magic, more problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but there's a lot of people into spirituality and new age and Buddhism and Hinduism and various levels of Christianity. Everybody's out looking for magical power. And so this is a common issue. And these thoughts are all unwholesome. Wanting things that we don't have, wishing for things that we don't have, imagining things to be that aren't, keeps us in a slight state of dissatisfaction. So this is one of the more subtle ways of understanding what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Of, of not wanting things that we don't have, whether it's a physical uh, piece of thing. In fact, at the level of what we've just talking about, wanting things that we don't have in the sense of magical powers, we could see that as talking about it in the sense of spiritual materialism, that those <laughs> magical powers are just material possessions that we could have that will bolster the ego and make us feel safe if we ever had that kind of power. <laughs> and the point is, is that we can feel safe without magical powers. Mm -hmm. Because we're allowing only wholesome thoughts into the mind. We're not allowing thoughts into the mind that make us feel unsafe and unsecure. So an example of that would be I feel unsafe and unsecure without those magical powers. And that's exactly what happens is, is that or the other part of it is, is that people feel safe and insecure and don't really know why. <laughs> and so they say, well, if I could get magical powers, then I could. Uh, feel safe and secure. Well, we actually know why they feel unsafe and insecure. It's because it's a habit pattern. They're used to doing it that way. They're used to giving themselves little thoughts, little trickles that set that stuff off, and then it starts into a snowball. And so that means that someplace along the line, we need to wake up to that so that we can actually talk ourselves into the reality of the situation that there are in fact no dangers right now, that right now everything is secure. So when we think of things that could be dangerous, we say, never mind, right now everything is okay. Everything is fine right now. Because thoughts of danger generally are unwholesome, especially if they're false dangers. 
when there really is no danger. In this present moment, there really is no danger. There's no alligators on your floor. You don't have mafia bosses climbing through your window. Your your computer screen doesn't have arms. It's about to grab you by the throat. So a lot of people think that that one happens. <laughs> wow. And they get captured and locked to their PC. Magically. Uh, Mm -hmm. All right, so these are all the kind of thoughts that we can begin to see are unwholesome. And as we going into uh, the, the constantly being on guard to look at this thought to see if it's wholesome or not. And if it's not wholesome, then we kick it out. And we substitute it or bring a new thought in of what, something like, wow, I don't have to think about that. Or I can let that go. I can let that fall right apart. That thought, out it goes, okay. The Buddha had the statement, aha, I see you, Myra. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, this is what we're talking about, is, is that we, uh, but uh, in order to do that, that's right effort, but right effort works with right view in the sense of right discernment about what is wholesome and what is not wholesome, as well as the willingness to throw out unwholesome things and to bring in and, and substitute and put wholesome thoughts in the mind. And so uh, all three of these things are skills to be developed. Sati is a skill to be developed, to keep remembering and keep remembering to keep looking at what we're doing. And then in the right view, we keep looking to see what we are doing. And we're, we're making a, a case on the sense of, is this wholesome? And sometimes we wake up and we recognize this thought is wholesome. And we say, yippee-ki-yo-ki-yay, I'm in a wholesome state of mind already. No efforts at all. Here we are. <laughs> and sometimes we look at a thought and we're not sure whether it's wholesome or not. The, the general case would be that if, it's, if it doesn't uh, absolutely appear wholesome, then it's probably tinged, which means that it has both attraction and dangers. And so the dangers can be then investigated, and that would be what we would call insight. What is the dukkha in that kind of thought? And we begin to understand that there's one kind of thought that we used to think is wholesome and now are not, and that would be what we would label as junk thoughts. <laughs> just ordinary junk thoughts so if you have a thought that causes suffering but you don't know why you, you should investigate the suffering or should you replace it as or soon as you recognize that it is suffering mm -hmm. see that's a big mistake that many people make in fact, you could say that that's the biggest mistake that the Mahasi method makes, is trying to answer that question. Now that this is dukkha, 
how deep into it do I go? <laughs> and what questions do I ask along the way? It's, that's almost like asking, now that you've given me a blistering hot rock this in, that just came out of the fire and I'm holding it in my hand, what am I going to do with it? And am I going oh. to sit stand here and let it burn the flesh on my hand? Or am I going to drop it? Okay, we don't even have to go through that thought process. We throw it out immediately. So this is the way that we recognize it is, is that the dukkha then is dangerous. It's a hot rock, and the sooner we get rid of it, the better. Because the skills that we're trying to develop is not the skill of deep dives into dukkha to find gold <laughs> buried under the coal. All right, some people want to do that. Some people call call that psychological archaeology of going back into our past. Um, actually, a way of thinking about that would be like a, a tree. And that uh, we think that what we've got to do is to uproot the tree. And so we start digging and digging and digging and digging. And there's a, a very interesting other way of doing it, and that is, is that, no, what will kill that tree is by just picking the leaves. So if a leaf comes <laughs> on, you just pull the leaf off. If you keep pulling the leaves off the tree, it will die, and you don't even have to dig it up. And so in a way, this is how we're practicing. One thought at a time comes up, and if it's a if it's a leaf on a weed, then we pick it off. So that the weed then has no substance. We don't have to pull it up by the root. But if it puts out leaves or whatever, we can cut those weeds off so that it has no sunshine, has no uh, uh, nourishment. And so the, the weeds will die out. This is exactly what happens in the mind with with habits. If you are uh, in the habit of, let us say that you are a piano player and that you have been playing a particular repertoire, but you've got one piece of music that's your favorite because you've been playing it since you were a child over and over and over and over again. Everybody likes it and you're very happy to play it. Okay, like that. And then something happens in the sense that you change your lifestyle. Many different possibilities. One would be that they became a Catholic priest and no more piano <laughs> or whatever like this. And so they don't practice that piano at all for years. And then he walks back up to the piano and he's got a hard time picking his way through that piece that it was so famous for, so favorite. Mm -hmm. So that means that these habits do die out. If we do not exercise them, they will die out. Another example of that would be a, um, a, a trail in the woods. And that the trail actually started with animal paths, then bigger animals, then motorbikes, and finally trucks go through the woods down this, this path, this trail. 
But if no travel on that path happens, if somebody puts up a big barricade or that there is a landslide or something that cuts that road off, then that road will grow up to the point that it may be even difficult to find it, find your way through it. Trees will grow and grass will grow and things will come from the uh, sides and it's hard to even see where the road was. Uh, So this is how habits change. And this is why it's so wholesome to take these unwholesome thoughts out of the mind. That's simply like picking the leaves. One leaf at a time and those old habits will die out. So without trying to get too complicated, there's another way of looking at it. And that is, is that imagine that reality is actually the tree and that we don't really need to kill the tree either by uprooting it or pulling the leaves off of it, but to recognize that it's not the tree itself but that is like a shadow of a tree, that the internal representation of the real world, the real tree out there, is not a real tree. It's kind of more like the shadow of a tree or a picture of a tree, like a photo of a tree, but it's a mental image of the tree. And this is where we live, is in that kind of reality. It's more like the shadow. And so if we can, in fact, get rid of the momentary shadows, we can actually see the tree. So this is another way of talking about it. Instead of picking one leaf off at a time, we're just removing one shadow at a time and stop looking at the shadow and start looking at the tree itself. This is actually how we begin to understand the nature of the the Buddha's teaching of Paticca Samapada. Why would the Buddha teach such a complicated thing? The answer is not complicated. The answer is that that's just how the mind works. And it's a brilliant, easy, step-by-step sequence of exactly how the mind works. And so an important part then is to recognize that we don't really live in the real world, that what we live in is a shadow world that we have created within the mind using words like perception. So we perceive. First, we are uh, able to see. We see the tree. But then we bring the image of the tree through the retina into the brain, and there we process that image into recognition. We recognize it as a tree so that we can call it a tree. So that internal representation that has the name to it goes through mm-hmm. a process that we call in English perception in the uh, uh, traditional uh Paticca Samapada teaching is called Nama Rupa. Basically what that means is that we take the real object out there, the Rupa, and name it or bring it on the inside. And so now what we're dealing with is an 
image or a name or a representation of the tree, not the real tree. And so we kind of already humans live in a fantasy world. And the fantasy world is something like the real world. The question is, how close to the real world is our fantasy world? If our, if our, uh, if the, our created fantasy world is very close to the world of reality, then there's very little room for suffering, very little room for unwholesome. But the further away our mind is from actual reality, so that we're living in the past, living in the future, living in magical thoughts, wanting things we don't have, uh, having to endure things that we don't want to endure and wanting to get rid of them. And that whole world that we live in is the world of suffering because it's so far from the actual reality of the situation and the reality of the situation. Right now, everything's okay. Everything's all right. Everything's fine. And so we keep coming back to that. That's the remember, to remember literally to wake up and to be in reality right here, right now, rather than in a mentally constructed world. Knowing that we have to mentally construct the world anyway, but that it's dangerous to do it too much. And so we find kind of a sweet spot or a balance point where just enough thinking is all we need to do. Just enough perceiving things. And sometimes it's better to not bother to perceive anything at all and just let the input come. Just allow yourself to be in the flood of reality because there's billions of things happening at a billionth of a second. Things are <laughs> really ferocious. It's, it's almost like the, you, you've heard of the stories about the Big Bang. Well, it we're still in it. <laughs> we're still in it. We're like uh, a speck of wood that's flying through the air. And so that's how ferocious things are. We're in a flood. But what happens is, is that we see a little bit and then we process it and come to an understanding of it. And then that gets us or contacts us. We have feelings about it. And off we go into our own world of <laughs> suffering while we're not paying attention to what's really going on again. But then eventually we come back and we do see what's going on. But now we're perceiving it, trying to make sense out of it. When we do, we make mistakes, we screw it up. And that's what contacts us. We wind up having even more feelings of liking and not liking. That leads to more clinging and more hell states and more woeful states. Okay. So what do we do to back through that? all the way down to at least to the point of feeling so that we can begin to manage our feelings. This is the first job that we have to do. Is where mindfulness at the point of contact or wisdom, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa calls it, at the point of contact so that we can manage and control the way that we feel. That you can feel the way that you want to feel. 
I mean, people do that all the time. They feel the way that they want to feel. But the problem is, is that they don't know exactly how to do it. And so it's a hit and miss game. And they wind up feeling bad when their intention was to feel good. <laughs> An example of that, I want to go vote. So I feel really good about going and voting. And now I have to spend all day in line. And now I don't like it at all. <laughs> so we have this whole um, thing going with uh, wholesome and unwholesome thoughts mixed together. And that that's uh, the reality that we create, which has a mixture of reality and a mixture of absolute fantasy that doesn't match mix with reality. So as we come quicker into the mind, we begin to see how we perceive things. We begin to see how we mix our own past so that we can begin to understand that if we can turn this perception system off, we can actually turn the feelings off too. And then we can really live in the real world of the sensory input. And it's very nice to be in reality. <laughs> and so we can practice doing this. And as we practice, the mind gets quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker, and it backs up through these processes so that we get to the point of just raw or bare consciousness, so that the scene is merely the scene, the herd is merely the herd, the cognized is merely the cognized, the touched is merely the touched. And we don't have to make a big deal out of it. And we don't have to deal with the big deal maker in there, the I. Just stay in perception or in sensory awareness. So this is part of the process of cleaning out the mind, getting only wholesome thoughts in the mind so that we can begin to see how the mind works. And along the way, we actually, with these wholesome thoughts, talk ourselves into feeling really good. We can see that, hey, there's nothing dangerous here. I can feel really safe and secure. I don't have to feel insecure. It's amazing. Our whole society is a very safe, secure society. The, the kind of dangers we have are very rare. And yet everybody in our society goes around feeling uptight and afraid. <laughs> and oftentimes creating the very dangers that they succumb to in their fear. Because fear creates a reality. An example of that is, is that if, you're in, if you encounter a policeman, if you're afraid of him, that'll show. He'll become afraid <laughs> of you, too. And somebody can get shot just because people can't control their feelings. So this is how we begin to work is, is that we practice changing our mind from ordinary states that are mixed wholesome and unwholesome, begin to check out what is wholesome and what is not wholesome, make sure that the thoughts are wholesome, gladden the mind, brighten the mind, and by that way, we begin to feel good. We literally talk ourselves into feeling comfortable. We begin to feel comfortable when we talk about being comfortable. We begin to feel satisfied when we think of being satisfied and, and uh, uh, have thoughts of 
satisfaction. And so we want to actually create the environment that is actually cap we're capable of being in. We're capable of right now of being relaxed and comfortable and not afraid of anything, secure, safe. And as we do that over and over and over again, bringing the mind back into the wholesome, back into the wholesome and start maintaining the wholesome, then we begin to gain confidence. The confidence of I can do this, the confidence of this can be done, the confidence of no matter how obstructed the mind gets, or another way of saying it, it doesn't matter how many gorillas come through the wall, it doesn't matter how many cops uh, uh, park their police cars all the way in the front yard, doesn't matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can calm down, take a deep breath, come back to this present moment, and live in reality. And I do not have to create the dangers that the mind wants to create. That's confidence. That kind of confidence is why they call it the lion. The Buddha was a lion, that kind of confidence. All right, the kind of confidence that is a winner. The kind of confidence, in fact, that's so confident we don't have to play the game. Okay, like the grand chess master does not play with any and all players I want to play with him. He knows that, in fact, if he keeps playing idiots who don't know how to play chess, he'll lose his sharpness. It's better for him to just not play until he's around another grandmaster. So we begin to disjoint from the world in the sense of when the world is con is presenting itself as a flood of data, we just let it be a flood of data without having to go through the perceptional process of this is really dangerous. These cops got their guns out and they're pointing at me and they're saying, put your hands in the air and all of this is really dangerous, you know, and then we feel really afraid. I can put my hands in the air without feeling afraid. <laughs> Hello, officer. Welcome. You look really excited. <laughs> That's the kind of confidence that can be had through the knowledge that you can keep your mind wholesome that you do not have to become afraid just because fearful things have been there before and we are in the habit of being afraid doesn't mean now we have to be afraid. That we can control the mind with our feelings. And, and the feelings control the mind and the mind controls the feelings. We begin to talk ourselves into feeling good and then we let that feel good maintain itself. While we are on guard to make sure that the next few thoughts that come by are all wholesome. 
And so maintain this state. This is how uh, how it's to be practiced. It does not have to be practiced formally. And in fact, in many cases in Asia, it requires no formal practice. The formal practice, I think, has gotten started because it's a moneymaker. <laughs> Go to a retreat. Spend a whole bunch of... Get away from it all. Or in fact, you can get away from it all by closing the lid of your PC, closing your eyes. <laughs> Then you can take a deep breath, tell yourself all about it. Wow, this is so nice. Everything's okay. Everything is fine. I have no work to do and nothing to play and no place to go. And the spring comes and the grass goes by itself. So. This is how we practice. It doesn't require that you do it a formal practice if you're doing it often, if you're doing it a lot. And generally what happens with people is, is that they do have a formal practice. They do do it um, a lot. They gain great benefit. They do feel like the lion, they're on top of the world. And so they stop doing their formal practice and then things start sliding right back downhill. Because they forget, they forget, they keep forgetting because sati is a skill to be developed. And if you're not practicing the piano, you're not going to remember how to play that piece of music. You're going to forget. And that's why we have a kind of a formal practice. So I would recommend you, you think about that, that you, as soon as you wake up in the morning, that you have 10 minutes of practice. As soon as, when you go to bed at night, have about 10 minutes of practice. Are there um, long breath, for example? Or what? Doing long breath, long breath, slow breath or whatever? Yes, the long, Deep. slow breath should be the, uh, the main practice. But you can do that when you're doing other stuff too. Is that recommended? If you can remember. Okay. If you can remember, <laughs> that should be the answer. Because that's what we're doing is that we're, uh, we're building the skill of remembering and reusing breath as an anchor to do that. So whenever we remember, we want to include with the remembering a deep breath. And that pretty soon they be, they almost come together. That you find yourself waking up already in a deep breath, or as the deep breath happens, the wake up happens together within a really really close split second. You're very so, buggy. Pardon. What? Your voice is coming in and out. Yes, there's a um, lack of internet connection.
So we I'm put it off up. my camera. Um, I think that we've about got it. Do you have any questions? Uh, yeah, I'm good. All right, well, we'll finish this call now, and uh, you can go literally practice. Redouble your efforts of having a bit of a formal practice to actually sit down just for the instance of developing sati, to develop gladdening the mind, to develop having wholesome thoughts, develop getting yourself into a great uh, state. I have a question now. Uh, right. Can you do walking practice? Pardon? Uh, that's a lot easier for me than sitting there. Uh, it's a lot easier for me to walk while doing the practice. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Walking is good. Uh, Walking, cool. the, we need to practice this in all four postures. Sitting, standing, walking, and laying down. We've already covered laying down and sitting. Walking, standing, mm -hmm. yes. I don't know of anybody who walks a lot who doesn't breathe while they're doing it. But oftentimes they're not even walk. paying any attention to their breathing and they're also often walking, they're not paying attention to what the mind is doing. Mm -hmm. So you can do both. You can pay you can walk and you can pay attention to what the mind is doing and you can pay attention to your breathing. Very good. Build up, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we'll talk to you later then. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Great. See you. See ya.